from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. We continue in the season of Epiphany, and our theme in this season is that Jesus Christ is displaying his glory in miracles, signs and wonders, and through the miracle that he does, he displays something about himself, that in the miracle and through the miracle and around the miracle, he's demonstrating an aspect of his glory, which is not just the miracle. As we come to this passage, however, we transition in the theme of the season of Epiphany. In this passage, Jesus does not do any mighty miracle but rather connecting it to what had just come last week in the earlier part of Luke chapter 6. Jesus now is displaying another aspect of his glory, not just as the miracle worker, but as the true prophet of whom Moses prophesied. It is to him you must listen and him you must obey. Up until this point, Luke has been primarily demonstrating Jesus in his power and glory, in his healing and teaching. What Jesus does here, however, is he is now triumphing over what plagues God's people. When I say Jesus does not do a mighty miracle, I mean, even though he does miracles in this chapter, none of them are singularly called out, and that's important for us to see. In fact, Luke is demonstrating something. Jesus in this chapter 
is demonstrated as the one who is greater than Moses. That is, the exodus which Moses brought about was amazing. It was stunning and beautiful and glorious. It was God wielding power from the heavens above onto a wicked kingdom, smashing them in the process of extricating his people out of slavery. And yet what Jesus does in this chapter, and Luke emphasizes by his construction of the passage, Jesus is shown here as the one who's going to bring about a real and true exodus for God's people. The exodus that Moses brought about was a true deliverance, and yet what Jesus is doing in these chapters screams, nay, demands for a reconciliation with what has come before. Now, what I mean by that is we as Christians, when we read the Scriptures, ought to be so thoroughly biblically saturated that echoes start to appear and we can connect the dots even when the gospel writer or the epistle writer doesn't do the work for us. If you've been a member of this church for any length of time, this should be old hat for you. And yet, if you haven't been here for a long time, I don't want you to feel out of the loop. That being said, we're going to take some time to explore the echoes of Exodus that this chapter uh, sounds with or sounds forth. We're going to see in this chapter how Jesus is not just the greater Moses, but in fact, he also in this story is playing the place of God or taking the place in this narrative of God's place in the Exodus. After looking at the history of God's people, as he brought them out of Egypt, we're going to move to look at how Jesus Christ maintained a primacy or an importance of communion with God in secret and private prayer. From there, his choosing of the apostles and what it says about his power and glory, his wisdom, even though he knew what would take place, he nevertheless chose the people he chose. And then looking at his great healing that he did as a, a somewhat of a removal of the signs of the curse that were on God's people. And then finally, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Plain. Many people call this the Sermon on the Plain, thinking it's a different setting than the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And we'll see that that's not actually what takes place. And in fact, it's very important that we understand they're the same teachings. They're the exact same teachings, although they're recorded in a different way, but it suggests something mightily powerful about the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish. In the exodus, God's salvation is a multifaceted story. If you have ever seen a movie, for example, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston or The Prince of Egypt, uh, was that DreamWorks or Disney? Good, it wasn't Disney. We can watch it. And... Um, <laughs> If you've ever seen those movies, you, you will remember amazing things. God does amazing things. What do I mean by multifaceted? I mean the work of God in the Exodus is like a gem. It has many faces. They are all one stone, and it reflects all true light. But as you turn that stone, other beautiful glimpses of God's grace and the colors of His work begin to appear. Some of the greatest things about the story of Exodus are always missed by us when we just watch movies but don't meditate in the text. For example, right before the final plague, God interrupts the plagues and says to all of Israel, ask for gold from your neighbors. And then that very night, they take all the gold that they were borrowing, 
with them. God had a reason for doing that, one we can't look at this morning. But the point is that God's work in the Exodus is glorious. He's showing His power in signs and wonders against Egypt. But it's important to remember, as we've been looking at in the season of Epiphany, God does not just show His power in the miracle, but all around the miracle. Before God ever did the plagues against Egypt, He set up the entire scenario. If you remember the story of Joseph, that is really where the Exodus has to be begun. It has to be considered that Joseph was sent by God, as he tells his brothers, you did this for evil, but God did this for good. God sends Joseph into Egypt in order to preserve the entire earth from a great seven-year-long famine. Joseph, because he understands Pharaoh's dream, has wisdom, and Pharaoh places him in charge of the nation. He, he's put under, he's put, uh, the entire nation is put under his control. He is second in command only to Pharaoh. Joseph then calls Israel and his 12 sons, his other 11 brothers, to come and live in the nation. When the book of Exodus opens, Moses, the first thing that he records is how those 12 sons in Israel came down and over a span of about 400 years have become multitudes of people. From 70 people, millions came forth in 400 years. God caused them to multiply, to be, uh, to be numerous, and to grow so large that this began to scare the Egyptians. Pharaoh saw that the Hebrews were growing strong in number, and so he desired to kill all of the male children, decreeing that they be thrown into the Nile. So I want you to picture this. The Hebrew midwives were told by Pharaoh, once you see a birth of a Hebrew, if that birth is a boy, take that boy and throw him into the waters. However, Moses escaped this decree because of Jochebed's disobedience. In the book of Hebrews, there's only one place outside of Exodus. We learn her name from Scripture, that Jochebed uh, Moses' mother, disobeyed Pharaoh's command, and yes, she did indeed throw him in the Nile, but she put a basket underneath him. Do you see the irony of what's developing in this story? After Moses was placed in the Nile basket, Pharaoh's very own daughter drew him up out of the water. In fact, his name, Moses, means I have drowned, drew, I drew him up out of the water. I pulled him up out of the water. His name is an ironic statement. Pharaoh has commanded all the male children, all the male Hebrews to be slaughtered, to be killed. And yet a Hebrew who escaped grows up in his own household. One of my favorite places as an aside, just I can't help myself, in the New Testament is when, I believe it's at the end of Philippians or Colossians, Paul says, all those in the emperor's household greet you. I love that. That is my favorite part, one of my favorite little details, little history, because what he's saying is the emperors of Rome are going to slaughter us. We've got believers in his household. It's like leaven that's invading. You can't stop the kingdom. So the point is that God is writing a story through Moses, and he's writing a story that's full of deep irony, but it's also full of a beautiful pattern. Though Moses grew up in Pharaoh's own household, God was raising him up to be a deliverer for his people. When God called Moses, he gave him three powerful signs. 
All of these are important to remember. The first sign was that he would cast a staff down, and it would become a serpent, and then he would pick it up by the tail. Now, if you know anything about serpents, you're not supposed to pick them up by the tail, but by the head. The point is, Moses has no fear in what he's doing. The next sign is the important sign to remember, and I thought it might be helpful to illustrate. God tells Moses to take his hand, and he puts it into his cloak, and he out comes a withered hand. And then he takes that hand, and he puts it back in the cloak, and it's open again. God is doing something with Moses. He's saying something in the midst of this sign. Yes, the staff we know will later become part of the plagues and the the war battle or spiritual warfare that Moses and Aaron do against the magicians of Egypt, but this sign speaks something about what God is doing. This sign in the details of the sign speaks about the nature of God's deliverance. The strong hand of Egypt is about to become ruined. And the weak hand of Israel is about to be made strong. But all of that is going to happen because God is going to, as it says in the very prior chapter, stretch his hand out against the Egyptians. You see, the details of these stories contain deep meaning. They contain deep meaning that we are supposed to draw from, interpreting by the Holy Spirit with the doctors of the church, the fathers of the faith, great, faithful, true, reliable commentators to help us find our way. After wielding these ten great plagues against Egypt, God brought Israel out with, as he says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Once in the wilderness, after wielding these ten plagues, God then calls Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai. We hear this in Exodus 19, that God calls and summons Moses up alone to come up to the mountain. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, which we will be studying in the Sunday school hour over the next few weeks, wonderfully. God calls Moses and the elders to come up with him. God first calls Moses, and then Moses somewhat comes down a little bit and says to Aaron and his sons and the 70 other elders of Israel, remember there were 70 who went down into Egypt, now there's 70 who come up to this mountain. God calls these up to Sinai, and he spends time with them. Later on, when we move from Sinai to Ebal, Mount Ebal, the same thing takes place. In between, however, Israel begins to wander in the desert, and they wander because they reject the message of the 12 spies, uh, the two good spies, and they believe the message of the 10 bad spies. God wants them to go into the promised land, and they reject that command, and instead they are fearful, and therefore they wander in the desert. After Israel wanders in the desert for a time, for a generation, because of their disobedience, when they're finally going to enter the land, God reiterates or re-gives the law on Mount Ebal. That's why the book of Deuteronomy is so named. It's the second Deutero, giving of the law, nomos. It's the second law pronunciation or second law giving. It is not that God changed the law, but the prior generation who heard the law at first had passed away, and so God is calling His people to faithfulness to Him. 
And not only does God call his people to faithfulness in a general sense, but on that mountain, God told the Levites in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 to stand upon the mountain and pronounce blessings for obedience and curses for breaking faith with Yahweh. I want you to to have all of these elements in the story because when we come to Luke chapter 6, if we do not remember the backstory, we cannot see the glory of Jesus in this regard. So I want to cover the story again. God sends Joseph and his brothers, 12 tribes, into Egypt. 400 years later, they are oppressed by Pharaoh. Originally, God blessed Pharaoh through Jacob or Israel, and now he is oppressing Israel, the people. God calls Moses to live even though a wicked king demands that he would die, and the one who gets away becomes the one who will later topple that empire. God calls Moses up. He gives them a sign about stretching forth a hand that's withered and it becomes strong. God gives ten plagues and calls Moses up to the top of the mountain. God calls not only Moses, but Aaron and the tribes, the elders of the tribes, up onto the mountain to commune with him. And then he, from the mountain, pronounces blessings and curses over the people, reminding them of the need for faith in Yahweh. Remembering the story of the Exodus, therefore, Jesus greatly outshines the glory of Moses. Moses, when he closes his prophecies, says, there's going to come a prophet that God will raise up from among the brothers, from among the Israelites, and it is to him you must listen, and it is him you must obey, and God will require it of every soul that does not obey him. Jesus is not only that prophet, the greater prophet than Moses, but he is God in the flesh. Jesus is shown in in Luke's gospel as the one who's going to bring about the true exodus for God's people. He's going to bring about true deliverance from all of their enemies. And this is where Jesus recapitulates the entire history of Israel and Moses. Now, what do I mean by recapitulates? I mean that Jesus, in his life, re-summarizes everything that has taken place with his people in such a way as he perfectly is an embodiment of the entire history of the trials, sufferings, and faithful perseverance of God's people. He is the one who summarizes and brings to completion. He is not just the capstone, he is also the foundation He's not just following in the steps of Moses. No, Moses foreshadowed what he would do in his life. Just as the nation of Israel fled into Egypt for food, Jesus fled into Egypt, not for food, but for refuge. Just as Pharaoh sought to put Moses to death, Herod sought to kill Jesus. In Luke's account, therefore, when we come to this passage, as we saw last week, when Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, it's hard not to see a parallel to the sign given to Moses. And in fact, in the prior chapter, Jesus heals a leprous man, and he says, go show, it to Mo- go show it to the Pharisees and Sadducees as a sign to them because of what Moses told. Here, however, we must be careful lest we miss an aspect of Christ's glory. It's important to see the details and the parallels. 
In the calling of Moses, God tells him, Moses, to perform the sign. Moses is the one who takes out his hand and puts his hand back in the cloth and stretches out his hand. But in this account, Jesus doesn't stretch out his hand. He's the one who tells the leprous man, the withered man, to stretch out his hand. You see, Jesus doesn't occupy Moses' place in this story. He occupies Yahweh's place in the retelling of this story. Jesus is therefore not just greater than Moses. He's God in the flesh. Yes, he's going to be that God-man. He's going to do everything that Moses had done, but he's going to do it in a way that he himself is showing that he's not just taking Moses' place. He's not just the new head of the nation. He is also God come to be with his people. In Luke's account of the calling of the apostles and Christ's teaching, therefore, Jesus recapitulates. If you, if you want to remember that word and what it means, you can think of that word cap, which I don't have the time to go into everything that that entails, but you can think of that as a head, something you put on your head. It recapitulates. It's the capstone. It is the summary. It is the bringing to completion and bringing up to maturity. Jesus is showing the greatness of his redemption. And here's where we begin to pick up with this passage. Just as we saw last week with Jesus doing that sign, the very next thing makes sense to us. Just as Moses alone was called up to commune with God, Jesus, at the beginning of this passage, ascends to the mountain to pray to his Father in secret prayer. In verse 12, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Unlike at Sinai, where the mountain was quaking and shaking and trembling under the glorious presence of God, Jesus' experience in this passage was secret and hidden. There's nothing remarkable about it that the people took notice. And in fact, as we've seen over and over again through our time in Epiphany, this is the glory of Jesus Christ's humility. Throughout his life and ministry, Jesus routinely retired to commune with God privately in secret prayer. In Luke 5, 16, the prior chapter, it says he would often do this. It was his habit. It was his way of life. In this instance, in Luke chapter 6, and in the pattern of his life throughout all of his ministry, the glory of his humility is shown that though Jesus is divine, he has an earnest recognition as his need, because he is a man, of wisdom from above. James tells us, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask to God without doubting. And Jesus clearly, certainly was doing that. Knowing that he tomorrow will select his apostles, he does not presume to complete that work without beginning it in prayer. In this way, Jesus not only becomes our example, he doesn't just pray on the mountain for us, rather, he also is giving us a pattern to imitate. Jesus is our master and he's our teacher. Jesus Christ on the mountain offered up fervent prayers and devoted prayers, not satisfying himself with a mere glimpse of God's presence from afar. Jesus did not merely pray for an hour or two. Rather, he lingered long so that the loving presence of the Father might fill his entire evening. He loved God's presence so much that an entire night of prayer was no difficulty. 
We see how young the apostles are in their faith when at the moment of Christ's greatest need, they're not able to even love Christ's presence enough, let alone the Father's presence in private prayer to watch for more than an hour, but again and again fall asleep. As disciples of Jesus Christ, if we call ourselves His disciples, we ought to give ourselves to cultivating secret and private prayer as a way of life. It ought to be not just a thing we do occasionally as a group of people with all-night prayer meetings. I love the all-night prayer meetings that we have here. But how often have you spent an hour with the Father? Brothers and sisters, an hour with the Father is, is the best hour you can spend. And Jesus is our master. He's our teacher. He's our example. He is the one we ought to imitate. And He is the one that we can meet through the word and private prayer. Give yourselves to cultivating private prayer. I forget which great Puritan or Reformed thinker said, but a man of God is nothing more than he is in his prayer closet. It is true. Jesus said, these kinds come out only by fasting and prayer. As he descends the mountain the next morning, Jesus then chooses 12 disciples. And I think this is highly significant. It signifies that he's going to bring a great renewal to the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 13, when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called a zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Again, many interesting echoes of the history of God's people reappear in this story. Just as God renamed Abram, Abraham, and Jacob, Israel, here Luke says that Jesus has renamed Simon, Peter. He has not only renamed Simon, Peter, but Luke says that he named these all to be apostles. Just as God took charge of these people, you will be my special people. Jesus chooses these disciples to become apostles, calling them to a significant ministry. Just as Moses sends the spies throughout the land, Jesus is going in just a few chapters to send these apostles to go all throughout Israel before him, preparing the way, just like John the Baptist in a sense. They're to preach the good news, they're to heal the sick, they're to cast out devils. This is like the invasion of the land of Canaan. Israel invaded the land of Canaan, but they did not push out all of the nations. They were troubled by and hammer, uh, harangued by the nations that, that hindered them. Likewise, Jesus is going to send these 12 new people, these new tribes, if you will, into the land of Israel, but not just the land of Israel. After his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus then says, you're going to go out into all the earth, not just the land, and you're going to take my gospel to the ends of the earth. The great promises which God had given to Abraham are going to be fulfilled through these apostles. All the nations are going to be blessed because of what's happened with this new Israel. After Jesus had called his apostles, he then demonstrates God's power over sin, sickness, and the devil. And he came down with them, the apostles, and stood on a level place. 
with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. At this point, we see at the coming of Christ that the people of Israel are in a dire state. They are in a troubled state. Great multitudes are sick and oppressed by evil spirits. Again, remembering the story of the Exodus is so helpful to us. Because immediately after the Exodus, God promised that if His people would obey His voice, He said, He will put none of the diseases on them that, I put, that He put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Clearly at the time of Christ, with great multitudes from every city coming who have curses in their body and are oppressed by evil spirits, Clearly, we can understand that the people of God are far from God at the time of Christ. Jesus Christ, therefore, comes at this time and demonstrates his power to save from sin by delivering delivering these people from the signs of the curse. In a sense, you can think of Jesus at this point in the retelling of the story as undoing the plagues. The plagues were supposed to touch Egypt and not Israel. And yet at this point in the narrative, Jesus comes to a people and they look like Egyptians in spirit and Egyptians in manifestation. That is to say, their, their waywardness of sin has bred such a deep, troubling state in them that they are oppressed by evil spirits. It's not just detached medical conditions that have rational explanations. No, these people are troubled. They have been imbibing of evil. They've been practicing like the Egyptians have. They've become idolaters. They have plagues on them. Although those at Sinai were not even able to touch the mountain, here it's important to see that Luke's account of the Sermon on the Plain is actually the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does not descend all the way from the top of the mountain into a valley or into a straight place, but rather a wide place up on the mountain. In the time at Sinai, God told the people that they were not allowed to touch the mountain, let alone come up on it. If you were here on Friday, you heard a reference to how if any of the animals of Israel's people were to touch even the periphery of the mountain, they were to be killed, but not killed by hand, but rather killed by shooting an arrow or slinging a stone. So great was the transgression of an unholy thing touching the holy mountain. But here, miracle of miracles, Jesus Christ is with his people on the mountain and calls up the disciples and the people of God to come up the mountain with him. Jesus is the one who is going to bring real and true purity. Because of Jesus, God's people can live with God. This is the holiness that Jesus is bringing to his people. And it's all being said by Luke and by Moses through the writings, through the details of the account. Unlike Moses, who was overwhelmed with all the needs of God's people, and Jethro gave wisdom to Moses, saying to appoint heads over tribes, heads over fifties, heads over hundreds, here Luke records that all of the multitudes came in and crowded upon Jesus and touched him, and he healed them all. 
Jesus did not need a mediator between himself and the people. Jesus was spiritually strong enough not only to minister to, but to deliver all of the people. It's one thing to give teaching to a group of people. It's another thing for all the nation to come and touch your body and demand spiritual power from you that they might be healed. And Jesus does not weary. Jesus does not run out of energy, if you will. The Spirit does not wane upon Jesus. No, He stays strong with Jesus. Having taken their sicknesses and oppression away, Jesus then begins to apply the law of God, teaching with great clarity and power. He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus here is pronouncing blessings upon those who are obedient to the promises and the cares of the gospel. That is, for those who hear the gospel and believe in it and pay attention to what it says to pay attention to, he says, you will be blessed. That word is often translated happy. Jesus says the way to true joy in life is to understand what the gospel calls men to, to receive it, to believe it by faith, and then to live it. The gospel, therefore, teaches a man of his need of salvation and his emptiness in himself. Jesus does not mean, blessed are the poor who are lacking cash, for they will receive cash in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who don't have any things because in the kingdom of heaven, they're going to get a lot of things. They're going to have better jobs. They're going to have raises. They're going to have material blessing. No, Jesus is teaching something completely different from what the majority of the modern church wants him to be teaching at this point. He says the poor are not those who are merely lacking money, but those who recognize the spiritual bankruptcy of themselves. Blessed are the poor, as Matthew says, in spirit. Luke's recording the same event in a different manner. Those who are hungry are not those without food alone. Lacking food or fasting does not produce spiritual righteousness. No, Jesus says those who hunger are those who recognize that their own self-righteousness is not sufficient. It doesn't satisfy their souls. They are hungering for a righteousness which God supplies by faith in Jesus Christ. They are longing for a water, the living water of Jesus Himself, the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in their lives and in their hearts. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are the ones who are blessed. Those who weep are not just those who have troubling circumstances. Now, it is true, brothers and sisters, that when we have troubling circumstances, we can trust God in them, but people throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, throughout the countries have had troubling circumstances. Jesus doesn't say that all those who have been oppressed by the role of the dice or by the circumstances of life are blessed. No, he says those who weep because of their own sin those who are grieved by their own sin and their proclivity to temptation. 
When I was a younger man in Christ, I was greatly concerned that I was not a true believer because I was still clinging to some forms of sin. And the greatest sign of grace of of God's activity in my life at that time, the, the thing that God sustained me with was he said, you wouldn't care at all if you didn't have real faith. If you were not truly my child, you would not be grieved over this sin. Some of us, however, are grieved because of the consequences of sin. It is not enough to grieve over sins like pride, lying, lustful hearts, uh, avarice towards others, unforgiveness. It is not enough to grieve over the effects of those sins. Yes, there is a guilt that comes after engaging in pornography. There is a guilt that comes after telling a lie. There's a guilt that comes after harboring unforgiveness to the point where you cannot sleep at night. Jesus Christ is not saying you are blessed if you're mourning over the consequences of your own sin. No, you are blessed if you are grieving at what that sin says about your love for God and what your sin says about the excellency of God. You see, every time we sin, every time we go back to iniquity, having professed faith in Christ, having claimed to be washed by the power of His blood, every time we return to that, to that iniquity so as to imbibe of it again, we are testifying that God is not good enough to sustain my spirit, that God is not my true pleasure and joy, my greatest crown and the, the one for whom I live. No, I want this other thing that not only is a violation of His law, but it is some false pleasure which I still am deceived in that I need. Jesus is not saying, blessed are you if you weep when you get into an accident. No, he's saying, blessed are you if you weep because you're prone to temptation. One of the greatest Christian hymns, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, it has a wonderfully precious line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel it. I I feel it and I By God's grace, I hope I mourn over that proneness to wander. If we're weeping and mourning over that which keeps God at a distance and makes God seem small to us, then we are blessed. We're not blessed if we just weep because we got a bad dealing of the cards, if you will, or a bad circumstance. Jesus then teaches his disciples to rejoice when they are persecuted because of him, saying, for your reward is great in heaven. Again, we don't merely rejoice as disciples of Christ because of tough circumstances. Rather, we rejoice when we're persecuted on account of the Son of Man. Not when we're persecuted because the world doesn't like the Christian culture or Christian stuff. No, when we are persecuted because we are standing for righteousness and when we are preaching the gospel, and when we are not joining in with the wicked at our workplace, or joining in with the wicked at our schools, or joining in with the wicked to enjoy the things that the world enjoys. No, we are blessed when we are persecuted as long as that persecution is coming from an association with Jesus Christ. Jesus then pronounces woes from that mountain. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus here pronounces woes upon those who see no need for the gospel and disobey its call to faith and repentance. 
Just as those who were poor are not poor in cash, those who are rich are not merely those with money. Although Jesus does say it is very difficult for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they are complacent with what they have. Those who are content with their own righteousness are rich in themselves, believing that they have all they need in this life. In Revelation 3, to the church of Laodicea, Jesus tells John to write them a letter saying, you, are, you claim to be rich and in need of nothing, but you are poor and naked and blind. And therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold. What does he mean? You say you're rich. You're not rich. Come and get gold. Real gold in Jesus Christ is not gold in your bank account. It's not cash in your account. It's not the ability to have things. No, gold from Jesus Christ is the recognition of a a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ that God grants to those who turn away from their own self-righteousness and cling to the cross. Those who are full in this life are those who are caught up with the cares of this world. The desire for other things, again, is a, a greatly distressing phrase. You see, we are not just prone to temptation of things that are off-limit or taboo or the secret and hidden sins. You and I, brothers and sisters, have a great temptation to just be caught up with the things of this world. Now, it is true we are stewards of the things God puts in our hands, but at the same time, life is much more than food and clothing. Life is much more than being concerned with the way our house looks or the way that our things are, the state of our car. This life is much more than just things. It's much more than just stuff. And Jesus says those who are full are those who are caught up with the cares of this world. Their hearts are like stomachs, and they've so filled their hearts with pointless things that they have no appetite for God. They have no appetite for prayer with God. They have no appetite for communion with God. They have no appetite for His Word. They're so busy with other things that they have no time in their schedule to even cultivate such an appetite. And Jesus says, woe are you if you are full. If you are full now, you will be cast out. You won't enter the banquet. You'll be in that place where there's nothing to eat. Those who laugh now, likewise, are not those who have fun, In our house, if that was true, we would be in a woeful state. We laugh all the time. But Jesus doesn't mean woe are those who laugh in joy, in purity, in celebrating the life that God has given His people. No, those who laugh are those who make a mockery of sin. Those who laugh are those who are concerned with setting their life at ease. Again, those who laugh are those who, their souls are so imbibing of entertainment They're so filled with frivolity that they have no capacity for the deeper things of God or any any thinking at all about spiritual or eternal matters. Those who laugh make a mockery of sin and do not care about righteousness at all, saying it'll be fine. Jesus, therefore, warns those who are loved by the world and who are praised by their fellow man. He says, if you are loved by the world... This is what they did to the false prophets. We all know what the righteous prophets did. The righteous prophets called Israel to remember the law that was given and called her to account for her wickedness. But we often forget the context of what the false prophets 
did. The false prophets said, peace, peace, to the people of Israel when there was no peace. They said, everything will be good with you because we have the temple. And if we look to the temple, then God will hear from heaven as He promised. And yet God asked, oh, that someone would just shut the doors on the temple in the midst of Israel's sin. The false prophet said, everything's fine. God will not judge good or evil. He will just bless. And yet Jesus says of these people, woe are you if men speak well of you because you're living like a false prophet. Those who are false prophet live by their living and speech are confirming men in their sin and their complacency against God. You see, we may never actively deny Jesus Christ saying, no, I don't believe in him like Peter did. No, I don't know Jesus. But do we deny him by the way that we live? Do we deny him in the world by never speaking about spiritual matters with those who, are, who would be eager to hear? Do we deny him by just never speaking his name? As Jesus said, for that which is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Have you ever thought about that? Next time you see a tweet with 30,000 likes, next time you see a highly acclaimed politician who promises the people everything without any cost, next time you see extremely popular teachers in the church who have no accountability to local churches, these people put their sermons on television that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I was with a wonderful new brother. I, I met him just a few weeks ago. He's actually not a member of our church, but he is a member of the church. And um, he was, it was a great blessing. And in our lunch that we had together, he, he said this comment that I've been thinking about, that those on the national level in the body of Christ who ought to have a voice do not. And those with the loudest voices, it's not clear that they should have that voice. And I've been thinking about that, brothers and sisters. That's been a very interesting thought. You see, that which is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It's not the case that that means that we can't write books or have popular theologians. Believe me, I love Calvin and all of the Puritans, and they are popular among the men in the church. I'm not saying that those people fit Jesus' description. But what I am saying is, woe are you if you claim to preach Christ and your message is at home with the world. And woe are you if you never speak about Christ at all. Jesus has the right to declare blessings for faith-filled obedience and curses against spiritual apathy and sloth. Jesus, in the retelling of the story of the Exodus, is not just standing on the mountain speaking like Moses, retelling what he heard from God. No, Jesus is the God-man. He is not only the, only the mediator, he also himself is God, and he is telling his people the application of the law to the matters of the heart. He is not just speaking an external code or the law in case law. No, he is preaching with clarity and power. He's speaking about the concerns of life. He now pronounces that by which he will judge when he returns to try all men according to what they have done. One of the greatest hymns that I've ever heard is the Te Deum. And if you want to hear it sung by a beautiful congregation, come to Dominion Academy's graduation this year. Surely they will re-sing it. It is an old and ancient hymn. And one of my favorite lines in that hymn is, 
when it says that Jesus Christ shall come to be our judge. Brothers and sisters, if you do not know that Jesus Christ will judge you personally at the end of all things, after the resurrection of the dead, I am here to tell you, Jesus Christ will judge you. You will stand in front of him, and he will judge you according to the deeds done in the body. That does not mean you will enter into heaven because of righteous good works. No, rather, he will judge, have you responded to the gospel? Have you responded and done that chief work which he says in the Gospel of John, God requires of all men to believe on the one whom he sent? And it is a wonderful blessing if you are in Christ. You need not fear that day. That, the reason that line in that hymn is so great for me is because it says Jesus will vindicate everything that is evil in this world that does not get judged now will be judged then. There will be no injustice on that final day. And oh, what a joy for Christians. The one who is tempted in all things without sin will judge and acquit his people. And he gives us a warning. These are the blessings. These are the woes. This is how I will judge on that final day. So, as Christ has taught and warned, my calling to us this morning is, let us live in the light of His coming judgment and the promise of eternal life with Him. You see, Jesus gave these laws, these retellings of the law, if you will, just in the same place of the story as what Moses did when they were on Mount Ebal. What happens after Mount Ebal? They're about to enter into the promised land. You see, if you live in this way, you have entered into the real promised land. Not just heaven after death, but no, heaven on earth, communion with God and communion with his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, his great warnings, his blessings, his, his woes that he gave upon that mountain. Lord, we thank you that Luke has faithfully recorded these for our benefit. We pray that we would be found as part of your people. We pray, God, that you would teach us to imitate your son. Lord, I pray that you would give me and this congregation to the place of private prayer ever more fully, that it would not only become a daily habit, but that it would become the chief joy of our life, far surpassing our spouses and our children and our jobs and our stuff. God, help us to learn how to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and let that love become expressed in our schedules and in our days and in the way that we walk with you and among your people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.